Good morning. Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. Amos is one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament, not because uh, he was less significant, but simply because the book is shorter than the other guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Our anchor passage today is from Amos chapter 5. It's just four verses, but buckle up because they pack a punch. And before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we come to you today desperately needing to hear from you. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Enlighten our hearts that we may grasp more deeply the hope to which we've been called. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, here now as I read the word of the Lord from Amos 5, 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. We live in a world where lots of people have lots of opinions about lots of things. Surely I don't need to tell you about that. But there's one thing that I think we can all agree on. We all hate hypocrisy. When somebody says one thing but does another, you think of the car with a fish sticker on the, on the back that cuts you off in traffic. You think of the politician who says one thing and then is caught doing the very thing he spoke out against. You think about a father who puts on a smile in front of everybody else, but a scowl for his family. You think about those that, that are appointed to protect life, but instead they destroy it. And all of those are examples of hypocrisy. And in the book of Amos, God charges his people with that exact charge. They're hypocrites. They're coming to the temple to worship God, but they're living their lives as if he doesn't matter. They work hard to get the details of their Sabbath right, but they're unconcerned with living lives of worship the other six days of the week. They say that Yahweh is their God, but the evidence tells a different story. And so here's the fundamental error that Amos addresses. A lack of love for neighbor shows a lack of love for God. They're hypocrites. Instead, what God wants is integrity of life. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments. You think about the first four commandments. God says, hey, this is how you love me. Love God. The other six, you say, this is how you love your neighbor. When Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he summarizes it and he says, The first is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. They go hand in hand. Or as Calvin put it, he says, serving God and serving neighbor are inseparably bound together. From the Old Testament to the New, God's people are called to reflect his own character in the way we act towards one another. So in Amos chapter 5, God basically says, you can't show up here in my temple and plead for my mercy and at the same time be unmerciful to others. You think it's like the parable of the unforgiving servant that Jesus told, somebody who had been forgiven so much and was unwilling to forgive little. So Amos, in this chapter, he gives us a lesson on uh, two primary things, and I'm going to incorporate a third thing in there. False worship that God rejects and true worship that God accepts. So what we'll see is that false worship is plagued by pretense, insincerity, and just kind of going through the motions. In contrast, we'll see that true worship is marked by dependence, integrity, and loving devotion to the Lord. As we unpack true worship further, we'll see that true worship is only and ever offered through Jesus Christ, our Lord. True worship is when the inward and the outward are in alignment. And true worship occurs in our corporate gatherings and in our all-of-life worship to the Lord. So we'll look at all three of those things as well as kind of see what Amos is saying about what false worship is. Earlier this year in seminary, I took a deep dive into this passage for a paper in one of my classes. Um, Prophet's class was one of my favorite classes, and here's why. Maybe you're like me. For most of my life, I've been reading some of these Old Testament prophets pretty confused. You know, how do I make sense of this context? How do I make sense of some of the metaphors that are used? How do I reconcile some of the strong and, and, and language that's used there? And really, how do I apply this to my life in the here and now? So I was excited for this class to help put some of those uh, connections together. And at the beginning of my class, my professor made this bold statement, but it was super, super helpful. He said, one reason Christians should study the Old Testament prophets is because the message of the prophets is essentially the message of the gospel. It's a message of judgment and mercy and restoration. It's a message of judgment for sin, mercy for sinners, and restoration for God's people. And over and over and over again, we see the prophets foretelling a day when that restoration would come through Jesus Christ. This is what the whole Bible is about. It's one unified story, isn't it? God rescuing his people and bringing them back to himself. But as we look at scripture, we see that not only has God saved us from something, but he saves us to something. He saves us for a life of love as his covenant people and to be a blessing to the world. The problem is, even though God's people had seen his redeeming hand in delivering them from slavery and in blessing them, their cup overflowing with his blessings, the problem is Israel wasn't upholding God's character in their daily lives. So God sends prophet after prophet after prophet, one to hold his people accountable, but also to call them to repentance, to come back to him. 
And Amos is one of those prophets. And maybe as I say Amos, most of you are probably thinking, why is he saying it that way? That sounds a little weird. I can't tell you how many people I talked to this week who said, isn't it Amos? I think it could really go either way. And if you really want to go to the Hebrew, I looked it up and it said Amos. So I'm not going to say it that way because I don't think that'd be very helpful. I'm going to say Amos that just flows off the tongue, but you can translate it to yourself. But Amos is one of those prophets and he was born in the southern kingdom of Judah, but God sends him to the northern kingdom of Israel in about the middle of the 8th century BC. And this time was a period of unprecedented prosperity. But this prosperity was mingled with great inequities. There was a victimization of the poor. There was widespread complacency to injustice in the culture. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and it was not as a result of free market competition, but it was as a result of exploitation and abuse. And here's what Amos comes to say on God's behalf. He says, you're talking the talk, but you are not walking the walk. The way you're praising God with your lips does not match up the way you're living your lives. And God sees you, and it's false worship. And Amos holds nothing back. So in a a one-off sermon here in Amos, I just think it'd be helpful to look at a little bit of the context. So in chapters 3 and 4, we're told that the roaring lion, which represents God, of course, the roaring lion will punish his people for all their iniquities. That's chapter 3, verse 2 of Amos. They oppress the poor. They crush the needy, chapter 4, verse 1 while at the very same time offering sacrifices, tithes, and offerings to the Lord. That's verses 4 and 5 there. The rest of the chapter tells us that God's chastening hand has been upon his people, and they haven't returned. God is speaking. They're not listening. And even still, in chapter 5, God continues to call his people to return to him, but this is distinct. He says, seek me and live. Seek me and live. And Israel had lost sight of the relational nature of the covenant that God had made with his people. And instead, they turned it into a lifeless ritualism. And it was cut off from the wholeness of their lives. Instead of seeking the Lord and loving good and hating evil, verses 11 and 12, chapter 5 says that they trample on the poor by extorting taxes out of them They afflict the righteous, which means they're hostile to the innocent, and they take bribes for unjust gain. They turn aside to the needy, and they refuse, as Deuteronomy says, they refuse to open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your your land. And not only this, they're pompous about it. They're trying to play both sides, get God's favor, And build up a little kingdom for themselves. They think that their prosperity of their time is a sign of God's blessing. And so the beginning and kind of the first half of chapter 5 says they're waiting for the day of the Lord to come so that their enemies will be judged. But instead what we see is that they themselves are judged. God's judgment falls on their own heads. And this is when God says in the first person, I hate 
I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I read one translation that says, they're a stench to me. Supposed to be a fragrant offering to the Lord, but they're a stench to me. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. It's an agitation to the Lord. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let's break down those verses just a, a little bit. In verses 21 to 23, what Amos is doing is he's progressing from the broad to the narrow. They had these great feasts, multiple days. In the feast, they had assemblies. And in the assemblies, they offered sacrifices and tithes and offerings and songs to the Lord. But the specific offerings mentioned here are monumental. By God's design, these offerings were meant to be a continual reminder of the people's need for him and his gracious provision for dealing with their sin. But these offerings that the people in Amos were offering were missing one very important component. And just to illustrate it with God's word, if you remember in Genesis 4, you've got Cain and Abel. We're told that Cain and Abel both offer to the Lord an offering, but God accepts Abel's and he rejects Cain's. Why is that? In Hebrews 11, we see that there was one very important component missing for Cain, but present in Abel. It said, by faith, Abel offered that which to the Lord, which was acceptable to God, and he was commended. Abel had this love for God, and Cain was missing it. And ever since Genesis 4, all the way through biblical history, we see that God is after people's hearts. And without a heart-level worship, the outward practices are not only rejected, but Proverbs 15.8 says they're an abomination to the Lord. So for God to reject their burnt offerings, their grain offerings, and their peace offerings was disastrous. It meant no atonement for sin, no satisfaction of God's wrath, no peace with God or one another. And so he says, I hate, I despise these feasts. Take them away from me. So as we think, you know, how could God hate the things that he's actually commanded his people to give to him? Well, think about this. Imagine the scene. This is what's going on. The leaders of the day, be it religious, social, judicial, the ones who were supposed to be modeling God's steadfast love and mercy, along with his righteous judgment in their daily lives, they're exacting taxes from the poor. They're getting rich off their backs and then taking some of those very taxes and offering it to the Lord in worship. Then they're coming before the Lord with peace offerings, which could be called fellowship offerings. And these represented both vertical peace and horizontal peace, peace with God and peace with man. They're supposed to signify devotion to God and communion with man. Do you see a problem here? Their devotion and their communion was actually a sham. Have you ever re-gifted something? Think about that. Have you ever re-gifted something? Uh, you know, maybe you're above that, but every now and then I find myself, you get something and you're like, yeah, I'm not too crazy about that, but I don't want to throw it away. I want to probably give that to somebody else. And then, have you ever held on to something so long 
that you want to re-gift it, but then you've forgotten who gave it to you. And what, what is the risk there? You might give it back to them and be found out that you, you didn't want what they gave you, and you gave it back to them, and uh, they might be offended. But worse than that, what's happening here would be like me stealing something from you and then giving it back to you as a gift, representing our fellowship and our friendship. And that is what is so offensive to the Lord here. That's how closely God associates with his people. He says, when you mistreat my people, you're mistreating me, and it's an abomination to me, and I will not accept what you have to offer. Verse 24 in this passage gives us a reason for God's rejection of their worship. And it gives us a glimpse into the kind of worship that would be acceptable to him. The opening word, but it shows a contrast here. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So this call for justice and righteousness would be exactly what was not happening in Israel at that time. Earlier in the chapter, Amos describes them as a people who turn justice to wormwood and they cast righteousness to the earth. And so in contrast, in verse 15, he urges them to establish justice in the gate. So the reason God rejects Israel's worship is not because there was something lacking in the offerings themselves. It's because there was something lacking in their hearts, which was shown by what was lacking in their lives. I'll say that again. The reason God rejects their worship, despises it, it's an abomination, is not because in and of themselves there was something offered wrongly or offered incorrectly in the details. What was offered wrongly, there was a lack of something in their hearts, which was shown by the lack of something in their lives. Their acts of worship were unaccompanied by acts of justice and righteousness. You know, these two words, they recall back um, to the call of Abraham. If you were to go look at kind of the the progression of Abraham from Genesis 12 onward and the call uh, that God chose Abraham, according to Genesis 18, 19, that he may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Then King David, another covenant representative, though he wasn't perfect, and we're going to come back to that in a second, 2 Samuel 8 says that David administered justice and righteousness to all his people. So with this in mind, one commentator that I read concludes that living lives of justice and righteousness provides the best summary available to define the covenant responsibilities of God's people. And to our modern ears, we get a little confused. Amos has sometimes been labeled the prophet of social justice, and there's a lot of opinions on what that means. Confusion comes when we apply Amos too narrowly and without context. Context is helpful. We've got to know what's the context of what he's saying. Confusion also comes when we separate the call for social justice from the grounds for social justice. The Bible calls us to be just, fair, and merciful, 
not because of a natural goodness of humanity or an ever-changing notion of what equity is. Rather, we're called to justice and righteousness because Yahweh is a God of justice and righteousness, and it's all over the Bible. We're called to joyfully submit to his lordship and to reflect his character in all we do. And so here we see that mere outward adherences to worship practices, void of a heart and a lifestyle that are aligned with such practices and such worship, is done in what? It's done in vain. Jesus describes it as honoring me with your lips and having a heart that is far from me. It's done in vain. It's like in Amos, the people were, were coming to God and they were saying, thanks for forgiving my sin, but I'm just going to keep walking in it. So when I talk about the need for our hearts to be in it, uh, maybe you're thinking, am I saying the inward is all that really matters? And the outward isn't that important. Is that what I'm saying? Not exactly. You know, God is definitely concerned with how we worship him. We just spent some time in the second commandment where God shows us, hey, this is how I want to be worshipped. What I'm saying is that when either one is missing, the inward or the outward, when either one is missing, then true worship is missing. True worship that God accepts is when the inward and the outward are aligned. There's harmony between what I'm saying with my lips and what I'm believing in my heart. There's unity in my physical posture and my spiritual posture before the Lord. If you think about a car, and I'm not a car guy, I'm sure you can just correct whatever I'm about to say, but if you just had all the outward things, if you just had the frame and you had the doors and the windows and the wheels and the suspension and the lights and all these things that are kind of just this outward shell of a car, but you didn't have an engine, you wouldn't get very far. Or flip it the other way, if, if, you, if you didn't have any of the outward stuff, but all you had was an engine on the ground, then all you have is an engine on the ground. You're not going anywhere. You need that engine to power the vehicle to move forward. You need both. And just like that, we need both our inward and our outward worship before the Lord to be aligned and working together. So let's consider another possible question that you may have. You say, Jonathan, are you saying, you know, Amos, the time of the people of Amos, they had, their lives were a wreck. Are you saying that I've got to clean myself up before I come to God in order for him to accept my worship? Again, not exactly. Uh, no, here is what I'm saying. I can think of three attitudes that we can put on when we walk through these doors in a Sunday morning. You can come in in three ways, I think. The first way you can come in is you can come in negligent. You can come in just going through the motions, not really caring a whole lot about what we're doing. You're more interested in what we're having for lunch than of worshiping the living God. That, that would be coming in here negligent. The second way is you could come in here fraudulent, or if you're grammatical, you want to say fraudulently. That's fine, too. You want to come in here in fraudulence. That's what the people of Amos were doing in Amos's day. They were coming in here aware of their wrongdoings, but just faking it. Or 
we can come in here repentant. We can come in here knowing that we can't clean ourselves up, but we need God to do that work. And there's no better illustration of this than I think of King David himself. Uh, I mentioned him earlier. You know, what, what kind of sacrifice does God accept? Well, David is called a man after my own heart, according to God. He administered justice and righteousness to all his people. And he was also a liar and an adulterer and a murderer in his affair with Bathsheba and killing off her husband. So how can those statements reconcile? Wouldn't he be called a hypocrite too? Well, I think the difference is the posture of David's heart under conviction by the Holy Spirit. So let's turn to Psalm 51. Stay in Amos, but I want to turn to Psalm 51 because this is a model of heart-level repentance before the Lord. He owns up to his sin, and what does he do? He throws himself on the mercy and the steadfast love of God. So verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51, this gives us really helpful language to know how to approach God in prayer. Um, and, I, and I think we can learn a lot, not, not just theologically from this, this psalm, but we can learn a lot in practice of how to come before God. So verse 16, David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not, there's that word, despise. God despises the worship of the people in Amos' day because their hearts weren't like that. Their hearts weren't broken before the Lord. Samuel, Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you can look in those prophets and you can see that they all have similar statements that what God truly desires is steadfast love and obedience more than sacrifice. Or as Proverbs 21.3 says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. God accepts David's worship here because he comes to God in humility and integrity. He knows that he can't clean himself up. He needs God to do that work. He says, oh God, what you're really after is my heart. And now I come before you and I give it to you unreservedly. Would you do that, that work of cleaning me, of cleansing me, purifying my heart, renewing a right spirit within, and transforming my life that I would be one that reflects your character in everything I do? Your justice, your righteousness, your love, your mercy, your grace, and my whole life. Lord, forgive me according to your steadfast love and mercy. And if there's hope for David then there's hope for you and me, too. The truth, the truth is, we've all fallen short of what God requires of us. We've done the very same things. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen and we've hated. We haven't loved God with our whole hearts and we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
we could rightly bear the title hypocrite. Many of us have shown up in worship with hearts that are divided and distracted. And so we could, we could approach God the way that the people do in Amos' day. We could approach God thinking that we just got to get all the outward practices right to make God happy. We sing songs. We, we, we come and we attend worship. We, we generally try to stay out of trouble. We give money. We think that that's going to make us a good person, but without love for God in our hearts that permeates our whole lives as the grounds, then it's meaningless. It's false worship, God says. Or we can come to God like David did. We can come to him with desperate and humble hearts, knowing that apart from his mercy, we've got nothing to offer. And that is not to drive us to despair. That's to drive us to Christ. We have nothing to offer. It is all of him. Christ is the only way that we can worship God in spirit and truth. John 4 And Christ is the only way our lives can be transformed according to his word. Christ is the prince of peace, and as Isaiah 9 says, he's the one on the throne of David who reigns with justice and righteousness. Even at the end of Amos, I mean, so much of Amos is indicting the people and and telling them that what they're doing is wrong, but at the very end, we get a glimpse of the hope of the restoration of God's people. He will gather them back and bring them into the land never to be uprooted again. But what we see when we trace God's storyline through the entire Bible, we see that 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 restoration comes through Christ. At the cross of Christ, we see God's justice, righteousness, love, mercy, and grace all perfectly displayed at the same time in this world-changing act of redemption. And so in the New Covenant... Christ gives clarity to our worship practices. We don't offer physical sacrifices anymore because God did not despise Christ's sacrifice. Christ provides everything that the Old Testament rites represented. Forgiveness of sin, freedom from condemnation, peace with God. Christ is the sacrificial lamb without spot or blemish who perfectly upheld God's law and dies in our place. Christ is our great high priest, the only one worthy to actually offer the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf and to intercede for us. And amazingly, God wills that Christ's just and righteous record be credited to all believers, not not by getting things right, but by faith, by faith alone. And because Jesus rose from the dead, not only that, but he actually renews your heart and gives you his spirit so that you actually can love God and neighbor. So Jesus' character marks ours so that the fruit of faith flows freely. He loves us, so we love others. He's merciful towards us, So we're merciful towards others. He shows us grace. We show others grace. He forgives us. And as Jesus taught us to pray, we forgive others. 
He's a God of justice, so we're called to be a people of justice. He's a God of righteousness, so we're called to be a people of righteousness. So true worship, the first of those three points, true worship is offered through Jesus. And so with this transformation, the writer of Hebrews says, in chapter 13, he says, Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there's that inseparable bond between loving God and loving neighbor. It's a continual sacrifice of your whole self to God. And so God-pleasing worship correlates with an all-of-life love for God and man. You think about this. Calvin defines worship this way. Worship is a lifting up of our hearts on high. The celebration on earth of the majesty in heaven. It is the manifesting among us of the glory that is above. But this happens in two distinct ways. They're not two independent ways, but they're uh, two contexts of worship that flow freely in and out of one another, and they're bound together, of course. The Bible gives us the dynamic of both corporate worship and all-of-life worship. Or as one author put it, he called it gathered and scattered worship, but that sounds too much like ordering hash browns at Waffle House to me. And so what we're going to use is corporate and all-of-life You know, corporate worship, of course, is what we're doing right now. It's showing up. It's showing up with God's people to worship God in the great assembly. Corporate doesn't mean business-type stuff or like a stuffy conference room. Corporate comes from the Latin word corpus, which means body. It's a reference to the body of Christ coming together. Who's the body of Christ? The church. The church coming together to worship God in his name. And so we hear from God's word. We respond with prayer and singing. We're nourished by the sacraments and we're sent out into our daily lives for all of life worship. All of life worship is loving God and loving neighbor every day of our lives. Romans 12, 1 to 2 illustrates this really well. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living Sacrifice. That means our whole selves to God. Holy and acceptable to God, which is only and ever done through Jesus. And this is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the test, by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when you walk out of this sanctuary... You go get in your car, and you go out into your daily lives. What message is your life sending? What would people around you say about what you say and what you do, about what you believe? What are the deep convictions of your heart? Which way is your life pointing? Are you offering yourselves to God holistically, as an offering of worship to him. 
As believers in an all-alive worship, we're called to reflect God's character with this every square inch mentality that Abraham Kuyper taught. Christ is Lord of all, so we want to see his glory manifested among us. We want to celebrate on earth, in everything we do, as Calvin said, the majesty of heaven. So as the people in Amos couldn't come just waltzing into the temple, acting like everything was okay, then we should also consider how we're reflecting God's character in our everyday lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, and in society as a whole. And let's be careful. We're basing it all in in the work of Christ, and so this is not moralism. It's love in action. DC Talk said it's love is a verb. The way we live as a reflection of what we believe. It's the Ephesians 2 dynamic of peace with God leading to peace with man. So let's think about those three spheres for just a minute. Uh, Homes, workplace, and society. So in our homes, and kids, how are you loving people like Jesus? Your brothers and sisters, your parents, people you invite in, friends, moms and dads, how are you caring for your kids like the blessings from God that they are? And how, how are we using our homes and our resources for hospitality and generosity and to be a blessing for others? And you move out just a little bit to our workplace, um, or maybe it's your school, maybe you're a student, so it's kind of just wherever you spend most of your day. Employers, how are you honoring your employees as image bearers of God? Are you treating them with integrity? Same question could be said about employees. Employees, how are you treating your employers as the God-appointed means of your provision and as the opportunity to use your gifts unto productive service? How are you treating fellow co-workers or classmates, students? How are you promoting truth, love, and mercy towards your classmates? What example are you setting for others? And then we move out to kind of our society at large. How are you showing Christ-likeness at sporting events or in neighborhoods or in social media, not just in what we say, but how we say it? You know, some of us may have unique opportunities to kind of bring God's justice and righteousness to bear at large levels. And we should take these opportunities grounded in gospel truth to spend and be spent for Christ, to sacrifice ourselves for Christ, to love God, to love neighbor. Now, all of us will have countless ordinary and everyday opportunities to bring this to bear, to love others in our daily lives. Are you looking for those opportunities and are you ready to respond to them with the love of Christ? Kind of as we wrap up, I want to think of one final question, and this, this hit me this week. And maybe you're like me, and, and this is the question that is, that is in your heart and in your mind right now. What if my heart's just not in it? What if my heart's not in it today? What if my heart hasn't been in it for a long time? I think that's a worthy question to consider. I know we've all been there. 
So, so there's two kind of responses to that, I think. The first one is this, is to really and truly examine yourself before the Lord. It is to look at what the pattern of life is saying about the state of your heart. Are you truly trusting and resting your eternal security on Christ alone? And so we should ask God to search our hearts. The end of Psalm 139 says this beautifully, Search me, Lord. Know my heart. Let's ask God to search our hearts. Let's turn from all the ways that you're seeking to build a kingdom for yourself and just fall in the arms of a loving and a gracious God who is steadfast in his love towards his people and is is merciful, abounding in mercy. For those who, who are resting in Christ today, maybe you're in a difficult season. Maybe you're in a season of grief. Maybe you're in a season of doubt or just in otherwise, you're not sure how to say it, but just drought before the Lord. Press in, don't withdraw. I think that's what the Lord would want us to say today. Press in, don't withdraw. Trust in the formative power of the means that God has given us to empower us by his grace. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But here's the thing, we want to do that like David. We want to press in with a heart that's desperate for God. And this is different than than the people in Amos' day. They pressed in not with a heart, not only with a heart that was not desperate for God, but they had no intention of wanting to change. This wasn't an isolated event that Amos 5 is talking about, but this was a pattern. It was a way of life for God's people back then. And so we, we, we don't want to approach God that way. So for you today, if you find your heart cold, cold before God, cold before his people, remember, remember that we swim in an ocean of grace. We can't forget that. I mentioned earlier, what are the means that God has given us to remind us of his grace and to empower us by his grace? It's the word of God. It's the word of God read, sung, prayed. It's the privilege of prayer, of calling out to the Lord. And it's the sacraments that God gave us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are God's ordained ways to assure us. His ordained ways to renew us and refresh us. His ordained ways to stir up a rich love for God and his people. So press in to these means of grace. In Amos, the people of God proved themselves to be false worshipers. Instead of taking refuge in God as king, they wanted the crown for themselves, and God's righteous judgment came upon them. Today, we're called to be true worshipers, God-oriented, God-centered people who worship him in spirit and truth. That is exactly what Jesus said. True worshipers will seek the Father in spirit and in truth. True worship offered through Christ. True worship is when the inward and the outward are aligned. True worship happens when we're gathered 
together in corporate worship and sent out for all of life worship. And according to Amos, this will be seen in the way God's justice and righteousness roll down through Christ and his church. So just as a, as a closing point here, I want to read Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Would you turn there? Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. A New Testament perspective here to summarize all that we've said today. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are desperate for you. We need you. We need you to do the work of redemption in our hearts and transformation in our lives, that we might be a people of justice and righteousness, of love and of mercy, of forgiveness, of grace. Lord, would you help us to worship you truly in spirit and in truth? And Lord, as we come before the table, would you nourish us? Christ, would you lift up our hearts and stir up in us a rich love for you and your people? We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would be working in an ongoing way in our lives as we, as we go from this place to live our lives of worship before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.